Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Over the last, I would say, decade or so, uh, we've seen uh, an awful lot of growing interest in facial recognition technology, especially as it's gotten, well, much better. I remember some stories in the very early days of TechTurt where facial recognition technology was basically a punchline as the technology was just not good at all, uh, even as there were companies experimenting with it. However, I think we've all seen that it's gotten much better over time. And I'm sure that many of us have been surprised to see Facebook or Google Photos uh, accurately pick out someone uh, on our out of our photos. And at least for me, that's where I first began to realize that the technology was getting much better, where it would see a, a random image of a bunch of people and pick out and know who was who, uh, or to collect a bunch of photos of someone and, and categorize them within, within a certain cl uh, classification. And so I think a lot of us realized that the technology was getting much more sophisticated. And it seemed that it was seemed like it was only a matter of time until other companies started to enter the space and offer different services around that. Now, over the last few years, one company has stood out as the, I would say, number one villain in the space, and that is Clearview AI, uh, who we were told had scraped billions of images from social media and created an incredibly powerful facial recognition search engine that just worked much better than anything that anyone had seen before or that anyone expected. And we heard about how it was being used by police departments around the country and also, I guess, some by some random famous people and investors who somehow got early access to it and who were using it almost as a party trick to, to take a picture of someone's face and find all their images online and find out about them. Uh, and then sometime after that story broke, there were other stories of how it was being used and then a story about how it was apparently founded by some Trumpist extremists, including the well-known online troll Chuck Johnson. And then there have been a bunch of lawsuits, and yet somehow the company keeps ticking along. So that original story of how Clearview even existed <laughs> came out of the New York Times uh, by my guest today, Kashmir Hill, who... Uh, has quite a story about how uh, how she even found out about Clearview in the first place. And she has now put that and much, much more into her new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, which details the rise of uh, all of facial recognition from its earliest days uh, to specifically the rise of Clearview. So, Kesh, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. <laughs> so... Uh, I love you start out the book with the story of like how you found out about Clearview and sort of the experience of figuring out what was going on there. And it's such a great story. So can you just share like how you first came across this company? Yeah. So I got a good tip um, and I love 
tips like this that come with a PDF <laughs> attached. A public records researcher named Freddie Martinez, who I knew from kind of privacy security world, uh, he had been asking police departments about the facial recognition technology they were using and how much they were paying for. He sent out FOIAs to a bunch of departments um, around the country. And he got a really interesting response from the Atlanta Police Department, a 26-page PDF. uh, And the first page of it said, uh, attorney work product, privileged and confidential. And it was a legal memo written by Paul Clement, very um, high-profile lawyer, used to be Solicitor General, now in private practice. And he'd written this memo apparently for Clearview AI to give to police departments explaining what Clearview AI was and reassuring officers that if they use the app, they would be fine and would not break any state (laughs) or federal laws, uh, which was eye-catching for me. And it was describing, I mean, what it was describing Clearview could do I just found shocking because, uh, you know, I've been covering this for a long time. I, like you, didn't think facial recognition technology worked that well. And I was a little right. shocked that it was this little startup I'd never heard of before that uh, apparently had done what, you know, Facebook and Google hadn't dared to do, hadn't been able to do as far as I know uh, or knew at the time. And I really wanted to start looking into them. Uh, but they were pretty mysterious. They wanted to stay in the shadows and they kind of actually went to lengths to try to keep me from being able to find out information about them. Yeah. And actually, I mean, even that story is interesting too, right? I mean, so um, uh, you can explain it, but you were able to find police departments that had had deals or at least access to Clearview, whether they were testing it or or not. Um and in the book, you sort of keep asking them to do a search on you. So what what happened there? Because this was this part was fascinating to me as well. Yeah, I mean, I got I got kind of lucky. Uh, police don't always want to tell journalists about the surveillance tools that are, uh, you know, in their in their tool sets. But I I found a couple of officers who were really excited to talk about how well Clearview AI worked. And um, yeah, they would talk to me. They would tell me how they'd use it in their cases. And that it helped them solve, you know, financial crimes and in one case, a sexual assault. But then they kept going cold on me after running a search of my face. And I would find out that Clearview had actually put an alert on my face so that they got some kind of notification when an officer uploaded my picture. (laughs) And they were calling the officers and telling them, don't talk to her, Um, which was pretty alarming for me personally, you know, to be targeted by this company that what I could find out about, about, about them seemed like they were, had some kind of ties to far right, like extreme politics. And then also that, you know, Clearview AI, this random startup could see who law enforcement was searching for, could control whether they could be found. And then about facial recognition technology more generally, I mean, it was a good example of how this technology can be wielded uh, in the real world, you know, to track, people that you want to keep tabs on, whether your government and it's, you know, protesters or your political opposition, um, or if your company, maybe you want to keep tabs on someone like me or government <laughs> officials. I was thinking about Uber, the way that they used to 
keep government officials from kind of getting full experience of the app or, you know, how we see Madison Square Garden use facial recognition technology yeah. in the last year to ban lawyers because they don't like lawyers who, who who sue them and cost them a lot of money. So it was just this example of, wow, this technology allows you to be watched and you just you you have no idea unless they act on it. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Madison Square Garden example is, you know, it's included in the book, and I know you've spoken about it also, where it's just like, and we've written about it on TechTurd as well, where, you know, it, it like basically, you know, the guy who who owns Madison Square Garden is mad that, that his company keeps getting sued. So he banned every lawyer from every firm effectively uh, from attending events at Madison Square Garden. So even if they're not working directly on cases against him, if they just want to go to an event, at Madison Square Garden, where there are a lot of events, if you're in New York, uh, they'll they just capture you. And you you went and tested that out with with a lawyer. Yeah, I found a lawyer that was on the ban list. She worked for a per- personal injury law firm, and we I bought tickets to a Rangers game. And so there's thousands of people that are streaming into Madison Square Garden. We walk through the front doors. You know, you have to put you have to go through security before you can kind of go into the building mm-hmm. and show your ticket and such. We put our bags down on a security belt. By the time we picked them up, a guard had approached us, asked her for her ID. Um, as soon as she showed it, he confirmed, you know, that 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 was the name they had on their list. They had scraped her photo from the law firm website that she worked for. And the manager came over, handed her this note and said, you're not welcome here. She said, I'm not working on the, the case against, you know, Madison Square Garden. They said, it doesn't matter. Everyone from your firm wow. is banned. The note said the kind of um, justification for this was the idea that somebody from the firm might come and do uh, discovery, you know, like outside of the appropriate legal channels, like she was going to go in there and start questioning, right. you know, the food vendors about the incident that her firm, but, but James Dolan has pretty much, uh, you know, the owner of Madison Square Garden in an interview yeah. with Fox News basically said, yeah, you know, it's my business. I can serve who I want to serve. And I don't want to serve lawyers. They're, you know, they're annoying. They've right. sued me. Why do I have to let them into my establishment? <laughs> Yeah. But this yeah. is actually I love the example of Madison Square Garden because it shows how laws can work because Madison Square Garden does this at Radio City Music Hall and Beacon Theater mm-hmm. and MSG in New York City. But they also have a theater in Chicago and they can't use facial okay. recognition technology uh, to keep lawyers out there because of BIPA. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, yeah. And that's that's an important part of the book as well. But but Illinois has this law, BIPA, which is the. What I forget what it stands for, even Biometric but. Information Privacy Act. There we are. There we are. You're talking to the and right person. Also, <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Yeah, uh, I know it's called BIPA, but I, I don't didn't remember what it stood for. But and and that allows people who are in Illinois to basically opt out of Clearview, right? They can get their data out. Is that correct? Or it actually it's that ra- it's the rare opt in law where oh okay yeah if you're a company um, you can't collect Illinoisans face prints or voice prints or any biometric identifier without their consent, or you face uh, up to a $5,000 okay. fine. And it's a very effective law because it has a private right of action. And so there's been lots of right. lots of lawsuits about this. It cost uh, Facebook $650 million to settle a lawsuit over right. this for do- rolling out um, automated photo tagging of your friends and photos. Right. Right. Interesting. So, you know, one of the things that's interesting, and and you sort of raised this a second ago, and that struck me sort of in reading through this is, I mean, you go through in great detail, and it's absolutely fascinating, the kind of the history of facial recognition from like 
the earliest, like, you know, practically pure pseudoscience, well, yes, pure pseudoscience days. Um, and to this point where suddenly it's gotten really good. Um, and the, the thing that struck me and still confuses me to this day is that you had these big companies, you had Facebook and Google who were working on it. And like, you know, sort of what comes out of the book is they sort of realize that this technology is, is good enough, but a little problematic to release to the world. And so they sort of choose to hold back, which may amaze people who are familiar with the histories of Facebook and Google. <laughs> um, but then, you know, Clearview, it's just like, these dudes like working in a coffee shop somewhere. It's not a big company. They have a little bit of funding and they sort of just completely come out of nowhere with a product that's just, everyone kind of says is amazing. And I'm, I'm still not sure I understand how that happened. <laughs> like, do you, do you have any sense? Like why, why these guys, why these, you know, they're, they're, I don't want to say nobodies, but they're effectively nobodies. Right. Yeah, I think well, one person I interviewed me about this referred to them as marginal actors uh, <laughs> and that the book kind of demonstrates how marginal actors can do very powerful things now because of basically the open sourcing of so many AI methods. And yeah, I think, right. I, I mean, it's such a fascinating part of the book that Google and Facebook kind of held off something like Clearview AI being in the world for about 10 years, um, right. past when the technology started getting uh, good by buying up the startups that made it possible and then making their products private um, and, and deciding themselves not to release it because of whatever their concerns were, whether it was reputational or legal risk or, you know, Eric Schmidt in 2011 said that, you know, this is the one technology that Google had built and not released and that they were just they, they thought it could be used for good, but that uh, evil dictator could just do horrible things with something like this, which right. absolutely they could. Um, and yeah, I mean, I assumed when I first heard about Clearview AI that they were super geniuses or yeah, just like technological masterminds that they were able to do this. Right. But when I was interviewing Juan Tan Tat, uh, kind of the technical co-founder of Clearview AI about it, he just described essentially following machine learning experts on Twitter and like going on to <laughs> GitHub and just like looking like looking for facial recognition and then pulling up, you know, open source code and algorithms. And he said, he said, he kind of laughed at himself and he said, I know how this is going to sound. It's going to sound like I uh, uh, Googled uh, flying cars and then was able to invent it from that. But that's kind of where we've gotten with the technology. It's like basically, you know, anyone with some technical savvy can get their hands on a, and make a pretty powerful facial recognition algorithm. And it's just a matter of getting the database of photos to go through. And that was Clearview's accomplishment here. Um, they went out and collected billions of faces from the internet and right. they were just willing to do it. It was, it was, uh, I think I call it ethical arbitrage in the book, but basically <laughs> right. it was an ethical breakthrough, not a technological one. Right. And even like, and I don't remember the exact details here, but, but, you know, Wonton Tap like brought in this other 
technical guy who it sounded like was kind of working part-time and just like on the side and then sort of helped build the algorithm and then went off to do something else and then maybe came back later. Yeah. I mean, even with like open source algorithms available, you know, kind of the building blocks to build from, there is, there's still some technical savvy that goes into this. And the way it's described to me is that Terrence Liu, he was this uh, kind of physics uh, PhD student um, at the time he met Juan Tan Tat and that he was better at the kind of human tinkering, the kind of uh, choosing see. the weights, you know, that are important in terms of how, what the algorithm is looking at. Um, and that he kind of like helped out on the side while he was looking for a job. And he helped the, the, the company like get its first really powerful algorithm. And then he left, took another job. And then he actually returned to Clearview in um in the last year or so. Um, and yeah, but it is, it's, 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 it's kind of wild. And when the first Clearview story came out, I actually, um, and I write about him in the book, but there was this team in Switzerland who, who wanted to do a story. They were journalists and they, they wanted to show how easy it is to do this. And so they started scraping photos of people huh. from Swiss events from Instagram and Facebook, and they were able to do so. And then they used some of the same, um, kind of code bases that Clearview had used and they built a facial recognition search and they went looking for photos of politicians. And I think they found one politician, you know, at a protest. Um, they found, I think, naked photos of another politician, you know, not affiliated with her name. And they they did an article about it and they said, you know, it's it doesn't take rocket scientists now to do this, right. which is why I do think it's important. We start thinking about laws and regulations to constrain this because technologically it has come very, very far now. Right, right. Yeah. Fascinating. So there, there are so many really interesting angles to talk about from this book, but let, let's talk a little bit about the sort of Chuck Johnson connection and the the sort of like uh, the the origins of Clearview AI, which there had been, you know, there had been a couple articles and it was weird because there was like this, I remember because it was a few months after like you had sort of broken open the whole like Clearview AI story and people were talking about it. And then all of a sudden it like popped up that like Chuck Johnson was somehow behind it, which I was just like, what? The? Like th- these things don't connect because anyone who's been on the internet you know, for a while sort of knew if Chuck Johnson is like this, this kind of joke, right? I mean, he's sort of almost a self-professed troll. I think he is a self-professed troll and just sort of famously would just piss people off and do all sorts of nonsense. And he had a sort of news site where he was, did not live up to journalistic standards, I would say. <laughs> and, um, yeah, he famously had sued Gawker. Um, and, um, and then, you know, at one point he had had like this crowdfunding app to like, you know, like, I can't even remember the details where it was like searching for like dirt on on enemies effectively, right? So he would, you know, crowdfund bounties if, if you could get dirt on people he didn't like, more or less. Um, and so then to find out that he was somehow behind this, uh, this app in some way. And I think like from the book, I sort of realized like the story is a little more complicated than that. So do you, you want to talk about sort of his involvement in all this? Yeah. So after I did, like when I first kind of discovered who was behind Clearview AI, it, Juan Tantat was kind of the central figure I was focused on. Right. He's a technical guy. 
And so I interviewed him and he would, he only told me about himself and then Richard Schwartz, who was this kind of longtime New York politico who worked, um, with Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor. Mm -hmm. And that's all he would talk about. And so I did that initial story. And then I kept hearing from various people who were like, you need to look deeper. Charles Johnson is also involved in this company. <laughs> An investor who was like, I didn't invest in part because I found out Charles Johnson was had some involvement. Wow. Uh, you know, other people just who were around the company who said, you know, Charles Johnson is a dark influence on Juan Tantat and <laughs> it concerns us. And and I started talking to Charles Johnson and he is such a he's he is a, a strange person. He actually loves, I think, talking to journalists and he pops up all all the time in various stories, most recently in this yes. business insider <laughs> story about Peter Thiel being uh, allegedly an FBI informant. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he's just kind of. He's kind of out there. But, um, you know, I did ask for a lot of proof from him in terms of documents. And I interviewed other people to confirm his involvement. And essentially, he, you know, he became friends. Juan Tantad originally, he grew up in Australia, moved to San Francisco, kind of was trying to make it in the tech world for a while, doing Facebook quizzes, iPhone games, an app called Trump Hair. I mean, kind of like silly, small scale mm -hmm. stuff. Then he moves to New York. And he kind of gets involved in, he, he would later say, tell me he was radicalized by the internet, but he's gets into, he gets into like following Breitbart, Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, is just in the MAGA crowd. And he mm -hmm. reaches out to Charles Johnson to join this Slack he was running for conservative, conservatively minded people. They meet up, they hang out, they have a real meeting of the minds and they end up going to the Republican National Convention together. And according to Johnson, this is kind of this is 2016, 2016 right? when Trump's the candidate who they're very both <clears throat> who they're both really excited about. And, you know, according to Johnson, he says that they first started talking about building something together at the RNC and that they were thinking about, man, wouldn't it be great if you had an app on your phone where you could kind of point your phone at somebody and know more information about them? Like, you know, not just who they are, but like what uh, about their face, you might gather. They, uh, basically, Johnson has this belief in this the physiognomy, this kind of discredited Victorian right. age belief that who we are which is, is enshrined which, in our face and our facial features, which is is popular in certain MAGA circles. Yes, but yes, debunked non-science. Yes, and, oh, sorry. And so at the RNC, Johnson introduces Juan Tantat to Peter Thiel, and after the conference, he connects him via email with Richard Schwartz and says, "You two should meet because Johnson lives on the other side of the country, and both Schwartz and Tantat are in New York." And so, yeah, he's there at the very beginning. And it really surprised me in the early days where they're trying to figure out what should we build. Initially, it wasn't a facial recognition app. It was a facial analysis app. And mm -hmm. they were talking about, you know, can we data crunch the photos of criminals to see if if you can tell from someone's face whether they might have a tendency towards criminality. Um Juan Tantat talked about after the Ashley Madison breach, when uh -huh. kind of those um, ethically minded hackers exposed all the people who were using Ashley Madison, including their their names and their addresses and such. He said, mm -hmm. oh, we should go take all those names, find those faces on Facebook, analyze oh them, God. and then we'll know what a cheating face looks like. <laughs> So initially they wow. were thinking and they were talking about whether you can tell from someone's face how intelligent they are, how healthy they right. are. They they were thinking like 
like a kind of app where you upload a face and it tells you likeliness to be a criminal. Like, how smart right. is this? Like, is this going to be a good job candidate? Do you want to date this person just based on what their face says about them? Um, uh, Juan Tadat later like has sworn off those beliefs and okay. they discovered it was actually um, maybe more scientifically sound and easier ultimately <laughs> just to scrape the internet and build an app that finds a face everywhere it appears uh, around around the web. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, and then even like, I don't think I even realized Richard Schwartz's involvement. And I remember he sort of popping up in a couple of places too because he was sort of very politically uh, minded person. Um, but I guess, and, and I don't, I don't remember if you include this in the book or not, but I was looking up some stuff on him and he had, he had done like another like internet company in the early two thousands, which was like this sort of like filtering company or something. Um, so I, I was like, oh, that actually makes a little more sense why maybe he, he would get involved in this company, but it, it just struck me as a very odd pairing. It was, I mean, it is a really odd pairing. And you're right. Yeah, he he briefly had this. Um, it was like a filtering software that he was trying to sell to schools right. and parents to make sure they didn't find porn, um, which is ironic because a tool like Clearview AI is a good way to find someone's uh, porn on the Internet if you're searching for their face and uh, coming up with things. But um yeah, Richard Schwartz was a bit random. I mean, he and Wonton Tat met and apparently it was a very... Uh, it was kind of like a meeting of the minds. It was interesting because Richard Schwartz and other people I talked to about Tontat described him as a character in search of an author. And <laughs> I love it. It's a great way. He's such a curious guy. He's a fascinating character to write yeah. about. He does seem so kind of swayed by whoever he's directly in contact with at any given moment. And with right. Clearview AI, originally like Richard Schwartz, uh, Juan Tontat said, He'd been kind of burned working with as a government contractor in the past. And so he kind of didn't want them to sell it to police, Tontat said. He said, you know, it's he said it's like not a good business to sell to the government. We should sell this to private industry. Like, let's sell it to airports and hotels and right. real estate buildings, you know. Uh, and Richard Schwartz had a lot of real estate contacts. So that's initially what they were trying to do. Charles Johnson, meanwhile, like wasn't helping them that much. And they eventually cut him out of the the company yes. or tried to, which right. is eventually, that's kind of like why he talked to me because he's a little bit mad, I think, about getting cut out of the company um, and not being publicly recognized uh, for his contributions to what became Clearview right. AI. Yeah. And actually, I mean, that was fascinating. I was just going to ask in general, because like, you know, the book starts out with like Clearview effectively hiding from you, like legitimately, like, you know, you know, making it so that you couldn't find out information about them. And then like, it becomes clear as the book goes on that, like, you know, Wonton Tat spent a bunch of time talking to you and was very open with you. Uh, and then Chuck Johnson was also really, really open with you. And so I was really like, it's, it's amazing. Cause you get, you, you know, you have access to emails and you share a bunch of details of all this stuff. And I was kind of amazed that either of them would even be willing to talk to you. <laughs> so like it, it makes for the, 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 it makes the book really fascinating, but it is interesting that, you know, you think the Johnson was willing to talk to you because, he was upset about 
that them trying to cut them out of the the company. Yeah, the history of the company. Yeah, I mean, this is always a question, right? As a journalist, like, why is somebody talking to you? What right. are their motivations? And I think you, I mean, as a journalist, I'm always thinking about that. And what do they have to gain? You know, are they trying to manipulate right. me? And just being very aware of that. Um, and yeah, I I think that. Well, one, so Clearview AI originally like didn't want to talk to me. And when I was able to to talk to some of their investors um, who originally didn't want to talk to me, I kind of like doorstepped them and they said, Clearview's lawyers told <laughs> us not to talk to you. But I was pregnant at the time. And the, the guy there, David Scalzo, the, who had founded the investment firm was a, you know, a decent guy such that when he saw how pregnant I was, he like invited me in to talk off the record. And then was so clearly excited about about Clearview that I said, you know, it looks really bad. Like this company has, is doesn't want to talk to me. They're hiding. They seem to have this powerful tool. Like it's just, right. they're not going to look good in this story. I, I think they really need somebody to say something nice about them. And he was like, okay, I'll, I'll talk about how excited I am about Clearview <laughs> AI and what an incredible tool they've made. Um, and he was, he, he was like, you know, they're not just going to sell it to police. They want to sell this to everybody. I, I hope one day, Every person in the world has Clearview AI on their on their phone, and you Clearview a face just like you Google somebody. Um, but at that point, I think Clearview knew a story was coming and that they wouldn't be right. able to stop it. And they hired a crisis communications consultant who um, who had a lot of experience. She was who Elliot Spitzer called during his <laughs> his troubles, right? And I think she told them like, "Look, the story's coming. It's better if you talk to them." And um, and so, yeah. And then Juan Tanta, I mean, I think he believes that what he's doing is is good. Like he made this incre incredible facial recognition technology app. I mean, like works really well, is 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 groundbreaking and right. that this is the best use case for it, like police using it to solve crime. So I think he wanted to defend it and and yeah, control um, control as much as he could what was written about him at least have his his version of the story there and not just Charles Johnson um, talking right. about what the history <laughs> of the company was. And, and it was interesting, actually, that that I think that was the VC who, like, towards the end of the book, um, you know, effectively said that he's kind of annoyed that they that the company has announced that they're limiting. They're only going to sell the police departments. They don't want the tool out there as publicly um, as as people are afraid it will be. Um, and he he seemed to you know say that that was the wrong thing that the, that they were the next Google if uh, if they could just get the, get the tool out there for consumers to use. Um, I'm curious what you thought of that when as as he was kind of uh, pitching that vision. Yeah, I mean, well, one thing it it speaks to the power that investors have to determine what technologies get developed. Yeah. Um, and he's a person who he told me, like, he just doesn't think privacy is going to exist anymore because technology is going to make it go away. And that's one version of the world. And some people do feel that way. Sure. Um, and so for him, it's like, that's if that's what's going to happen, he wants to be the one that gets to make profits off of it. And he's a bit frustrated, even though I think for Clearview, it's been very it's been a very successful tactic to ultimately limit clear their their database to police use. It's mm -hmm. kind of protected them from a lot of legal blowback. Um, 
Right. But but for him, he's like, yeah, they. I thought they were going to be Travis Kalanick, you know. I thought they were going to be Uber Airbnb. Right. They were going to charge forward despite the regulations out there and and just do this thing. And he says now Clearview is just like a GoFundMe for lawyers. Uh, <laughs> and he's found it very frustrating. Um, but yeah, and yeah, I mean, his argument was, you know, if Clearview AI was a five dollar app that people could put on their phone so that they could just identify anyone at any time for whatever reason. He thinks a lot of people would download that app and pay for that. Yeah. He's, he might not be right. wrong. Um, so, so there was one one other interesting thing that I wanted to ask you about, which which struck me as interesting. Now, obviously, after all this came out, there have been a whole bunch of lawsuits and they've, you know, they've been engaged in all of these these legal fights over, you know, if the app is legal and certain places has been declared illegal. Um, but what struck me and I was curious if you had any thoughts on this, your first that first you know, set of information that was leaked to you included this letter from Paul Clement. And you mentioned, you know, Paul Clement is a huge, well-known, you know, top of the top lawyer. He is not cheap. He is not easy to get access to. And that actually surprised me a little bit when compared with the rest of the, the story, which is that these are, these are just like, you know, these knuckleheads in a, in a coffee shop building this amazing thing. Nobody really knew about them. Like, I totally understand, like, after it goes public and after everybody knows about them, like, and they're getting lawsuits, like, go, you know, get Paul Clement to to write something on their behalf or whatever to represent them. The fact that they had him lined up before anyone even knew about the company struck me as interesting and not fully explained. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, like, how that came to be? Well, there's two sides of this company, right? There's Juan Tantat, and Juan Tantat is like a scrappy technologist who, yeah, he they didn't even have an office. He would go to East Village cafes with free Wi-Fi to kind right. of like research facial recognition algorithms and would hire contractors that he met on like dark web forums to go scrape faces <laughs> for him and pay them in Bitcoin and wouldn't even know their names. Like he is very like scrappy and how cheap can we make this? And then you have this other side, right. which is Richard Schwartz, you know, somebody who has been in conservative circle, you know, has been in conservative politics mm -hmm. for a long time, knows Rudy Giuliani, you know, he like has more high profile connections. And so it's Richard Schwartz who calls the lawyers and not just Paul Clement, but Floyd Abrams. He called up Floyd Abrams right. once Clearview's existence was out there and they started getting sued all around the country. Um, they wanted to make this argument um, that what they were doing is protected by the First Amendment, that they have the right, they have a First Amendment right as a company to go out there and get public information off the internet and make it searchable and organize it by face. And so, yeah, so we called up Floyd Abrams. Um, uh, they seem to have an a, a, a very robust budget for hiring lawyers, and they have hired some very <laughs> good lawyers. And yeah, that seems to be more the Richard Schwartz department. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I assumed as much that it came from him. I was just surprised that they had that that came as early as it did, but but yeah, I mean, makes sense, I, I guess. Um, I, 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 and I will note, like the interesting thing to me, like I've been very critical of Clearview AI, and and I think there are lots of problems there, and I think they're really 
well highlighted in the book and we haven't even spoken about it. i mean there's like all sorts of details of like people being arrested and thrown in jail being falsely identified because of Clearview, which is you know just gives you a sense of like how bad this can go in all sorts of ways um but but the the thing that struck me in reading the book is i actually by the end of it i think i was more sympathetic to clearview's position than i thought i would be and that i was coming into the book <laughs> like I was surprised at how, at the end of the book, I was a lot more conflicted about Clearview's existence than I was at the beginning of the book. <laughs> like, I went in thinking, this is just horrible. And by the end of the book, I was like, oh, man, this is a lot more complicated than I thought it was. I mean, I think it and is really complicated. I'm, I'm kind of curious how you, yeah. How, how do you feel about that? I mean, I think it is really complicated. I actually only know of one case where Clearview AI has gone okay. wrong so far. This this guy who was arrested in Atlanta for basically stealing purses in Louisiana. He'd never been to Louisiana before. Um, and he was arrested and held in jail for a week awaiting extradition uh, before it finally was cleared up uh, because he basically sent a bunch of photos and a video of his face to the cops in New Orleans. And they looked at it and said, oh, actually, he isn't the same guy. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, it can go quite, quite, quite wrong if police don't do proper investigation. But, yeah, I mean, I think this is really is really complicated. Um, I mean, I think facial recognition technology as a means to solve crimes is a very appealing use. That said, there's so many questions. Um, you know, should police in New Orleans who are trying to, you know, solve a local crime be searching a database with 30 billion faces in it to solve that crime, like putting right. all of us in the lineup? And that, you know, it's going to get it wrong sometimes, even as powerful as facial recognition technology is now we're not all unique snowflakes. We have doppelgangers. <laughs> and if it's not properly regulated, that's a problem. And it, in addition to like, I think some uh, constitutional lawyers feel like is, you know, is that appropriate search? Um, right. Should all of us be in the lineup for every crime uh, for any department that's using Clearview AI? Um, yeah. I mean, I think the question of what should they be allowed to do is another complicated one, especially in the U.S. where, you know, we we don't have strong privacy laws. Most places, you know, outside of Illinois, you, you don't really have a way to say, yeah, I don't think I should be in that database. I didn't I didn't say Clearview could have my my photo. And I think it gets into some of the same questions we're asking now about generative AI and the the kind of um, collection of information, these training databases where they just scrape the Internet. Um, are we OK with you know, random companies just going out and collecting all this data and doing what they want with it and using it um, to build databases. I mean, I, th I think these questions are really complicated and, and how we answer those questions. Are they the same for facial recognition technology as generative AI? Is the information different when it's very personal? It's a biometric, it's our face, or is it not? And I think there's kind of a different approach in Europe. There's kind of like, there's kind of the approach has been you don't have a right to put me in your database. And in the U.S. and the few states that have relevant laws, the access and deletion laws where you can go to a company, it's the right is I have a right to get out of your database. And that's just right. that's that's such a interesting dichotomy. Yeah. And it's interesting to me right after I finished reading your book, 
I started reading this other book called The Alignment Problem by Brian Christian. I don't know if you're familiar with it at all, but um, it is, it came out a few years ago and it is about, it's very complimentary to read with with your book. And actually like there are parts of it where I was like, I feel like chapters or sections from either book could be placed in the other book and it would fit. <laughs> um, and it, it kind of goes into some of the history of AI and uh, machine learning, um, which your book touches on, but it talks about it too. And what it's talking about, and I'm only partway through the book, so I haven't gotten that far yet, but is about like effectively the bias that is based on like all of the data that the machine learning systems are, are trained on. Um, and how that leads to like really questionable outcomes or, you know, outcomes that appear, um, you know, uh, racially insensitive or culturally insensitive or whatever is sort of like reflecting back the reality of the data that was put into it. <laughs> and so like basically asking these questions of like, how do we deal with that issue? Um, and it's talking about it in terms of like, um, a, a few different types of AI, including like sentencing guideline AI, like these tools that are out there that say like, how likely is it that this person is going to reoffend or things like that, where those are often black boxes. Um, there's a lot in there that's like, it's really, really interesting and just aligns really well. And, and the, it's, it's funny because like, it talks about some of kind of the same history that you get into, but a lot of it is like right next to that history. And so like, it, it, I just was like, oh, wow, I'm going to like, if I keep reading this book, I'm going to forget which ones were in your book and which ones were in, were in the other book. I'll have to read um, it. <laughs> yeah, it's worth reading. It's really good so far. Again, like I'm not that far into it. Um, but it's just like making me realize like how much of this is like this technology is coming and how do we how do we deal with all of it? Is is just a, such a really really thorny question that I don't think anyone is really, you know. I mean, it feels to me that most of the discussions on it are like you know just like flat out like ban this or whatever, which I don't necessarily think is possible or necessarily the right answer either. That that you know seems like it's going too far in, in a different direction. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's more regulating the use of it. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah. mean, like, I think that the existence of facial recognition technology makes possible this new era of discrimination, where historically all of our civil rights laws have been about kind of visual um visual categories, basically like your gender, your ethnicity, right. you know, your religion, disabilities, like things that people could see and use to discriminate against you to not let you into, you know, their establishment. But now with facial recognition technology, there's so much more that can be known about you. Like you could yeah. know if you're a Democrat or a Republican or like possibly how you feel about vaccinations or right. where you work or... Um, I mean, just all kinds of things could be attached to your face. And do we want to just have a free for all where you can treat people however you want, like how rich you are, how poor you are, um, that you're allowed to, as a company, you know, act on all those kinds of information that are available to them? Do we want to live in a world where everyone is allowed to have an app like this on their phone and just identify you in all kinds of 
possibly intimate or sensitive settings. Like, I don't want to live yeah. in that world. <laughs> I, I, yeah. <laughs> I gossip at dinner all the time, you know, with colleagues, with friends, <laughs> and I don't want someone sitting next to me, like taking a photo of my face and then knowing I'm talking about the New York Times. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that anonymity in public is necessary for just like having a nice world that we want to live in. And so I, I do think that we can constrain it yeah. and make decisions about it. And and one thing is that question of databases. Can anybody put me in their database and make me identifiable? Um, in Europe, they've said no. And in the U.S. so far, we're saying, yes, it's fine unless you live in Illinois, in which case, right. happy you. Your face is better protected than the rest of us. Um, I think it comes up like very, very briefly in the book, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious when we can sort of finish up around this, but like, there are other, you know, Clearview gets the, 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 the attention, but there are other facial recognition companies out there. And like, there is sort of a semi consumery kind of thing, which PIMIS, which gets a fair bit of attention, um, but not nearly as much as Clearview. And I'm, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts of like, is is this, is it too late? You know, is, is something like PIMIS what, you know, I don't think it's, it's hugely successful, but it is out there and it is known. Um, is it, is, is, you know, is this just out there and there's no way to stop it? Yeah. I think it's important to make that differentiation. Actually, there's lots of different facial recognition technology companies and some of them just sell algorithms and you have to bring your own database. Right. And so I heard from a lot of those companies who were, are annoyed about the existence of Clearview and PIMIS <laughs> because they are doing something different where they're like, here's the built-in database. Um, and so, yeah, right. so they kind of see them as outliers who are kind of dirtying the reputation of the whole industry. So with so Clearview is limited to police use, to government use. And then PIMIS is kind of just generally available. And they, I mean, it's a strange company. It's run by a guy who lives in Georgia, the country. The corporate huh. headquarters are in the UAE. And then they seem to have like legal services offered by somewhere in the Caribbean. So how do you how do you regulate a company like that? Like it's a difficult yeah. challenge. Um, there's another one called facecheck.id that sprung up and they're okay. based in Indonesia. The people who run it never respond to any kind of inquiries I send them, like very mysterious. PIMIS is responsive. The guy who, who runs it, his name's Georgie Gobronice, uh -huh. and he like he always he talks to me. I just did a story about um, uh, the possibility that your child's face could be run through PIMIS and reveal, ah. you know, their identity, where they live, like anything right. publicly posted of them. And PIMIS, after the story went up, um, actually blocks searches of kids' faces now. And so, interesting. Uh, so, but it, it puts me in a weird. I feel like I'm the privacy regulator. Like I'm writing about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, I was like, good, yeah. good job. Then, <laughs> you, you're changing society. Like, yeah, actually, it is a bad idea to have a face recognition for kids' faces. Like, let's change that. Um, so clearly, these companies are responsive to, you know, public scrutiny, perhaps, or you know, yeah, if lawmakers or yeah. regulators start, start actually, you know, kind of putting pressure on them, I think they would change their practices. So again, I don't think it's too late. I do believe that laws can work. Um, you know, they need to be, they need to be good ones, but I, I do think that the technology is here to stay. Um, 
I don't right. think it's going to like go away or put it back in a bag, but I think we can control how it gets used. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. Well, I, uh, this was great. Um, and the book is excellent. It's just, it's really well written. It's fascinating. It's, you know, it'll, it'll, the, the stories are well told and it'll, it'll, you know, you, you, it's tough to put down. Uh, it's called your face belongs to us by Kashmir Hill. Um, and so thank you for writing it. It's, excellent and thought-provoking and uh really really good so if you have not read it and you're listening to this go get a copy and read it it is wonderful and uh thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast as well and to talk thanks about it. mike and i guess i'll be reading the alignment problem as well <laughs> Yes, yes, check it, check it out. It's I, I they they it's it was so weird how well the two books seem to go together. Where I was like reading it and I was like, wait, I was like, this chapter feels like I'm still reading your book. Uh so uh yeah, check it out. I think you'll you'll enjoy that as well. And anyone listening as well, check out that book also. Great. Uh so anyways, uh thank you very much and uh uh, thanks for everyone for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks so much, Mike.